Chapter One of The Lodger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Lodger by Marie Belloc Lowndes. Chapter One. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me, and mine acquaintance into darkness. Psalm eighty-eight, eighteen. Robert Bunting and Ellen, his wife, sat before their dully burning, carefully banked up fire. The room, especially when it be known that it was part of a house standing in a grimy, if not exactly sordid, London thoroughfare, was exceptionally clean and well cared for. A casual stranger, more particularly one of a superior class to their own, on suddenly opening the door of that sitting-room, would have thought that Mr. and Mrs. Bunting presented a very pleasant, cosy picture of comfortable married life. Bunting, who was leaning back in a deep leather armchair, was clean-shaven and dapper, still in appearance what he had been for many years of his life, a self-respecting manservant. On his wife, now sitting up in an uncomfortable straight-backed chair, the marks of past servitude were less apparent, but they were there all the same, in her neat black stuff dress, and in her scrupulously clean, plain collar and cuffs. Mrs. Bunting, as a single woman, had been what is known as a useful maid. But peculiarly true of average English life is the time-worn English proverb as to appearances being deceitful. Mr. and Mrs. Bunting were sitting in a very nice room, and in their time, how long ago it now seemed, both husband and wife had been proud of their carefully chosen belongings. Everything in the room was strong and substantial, and each article of furniture had been bought at a well-conducted auction held in a private house. Thus the red damask curtains, which now shut out the fog-laden, drizzling atmosphere of the Marylebone Road, had cost a mere song, and yet they might have been warranted to last another thirty years. A great bargain also had been the excellent Axminster carpet which covered the floor, as again the armchair in which Bunting now sat forward staring into the dull, small fire. In fact, that armchair had been an extravagance of Mrs. Bunting. She had wanted her husband to be comfortable after the day's work was done, and she had paid thirty-seven shillings for the chair. Only yesterday Bunting had tried to find a purchaser for it, but the man who had come to look at it, guessing their cruel necessities, had only offered them twelve shillings and sixpence for it. So for the present they were keeping their armchair. But man and woman want something more than mere material comfort, much as that is valued by the buntings of this world. So, on the walls of the sitting-room, hung neatly framed, if now rather faded, photographs, photographs of Mr. and Mrs. Bunting's various former employers, and of the pretty country houses in which they had separately lived during the long years they had spent in a not unhappy servitude. But appearances were not only deceitful, they were more than usually deceitful with regard to these unfortunate people. In spite of their good furniture, that substantial outward sign of respectability which is the last thing which wise folk who fall into trouble try to dispose of, they were almost at the end of their tether. Already they had learnt to go hungry, and they were beginning to learn to go cold. Tobacco, the last thing the sober man forgoes among his comforts, had been given up some time ago by bunting and even Mrs. Bunting, prim, prudent, careful woman as she was in her way, had realized what this must mean to him. So well, indeed, had she understood 
that some days back she had crept out and bought him a packet of Virginia. Bunting had been touched, touched as he had not been for years by any woman's thought and love for him. Painful tears had forced themselves into his eyes, and husband and wife had both felt in their odd, unemotional way moved to the heart. Fortunately, he never guessed, how could he have guessed with his slow, normal, rather dull mind, that his poor Ellen had since more than once bitterly regretted that fourpence halfpenny, for they were now very near the soundless depths which divide those who dwell on the safe tableland of security, those, that is, who are sure of making a respectable, if not a happy living, and the submerged multitude who, through some lack in themselves, or owing to the conditions under which our strange civilization has become organized, struggle rudderless till they die in workhouse, hospital, or prison. Had the Buntings been in a class lower than their own, had they belonged to the great company of human beings technically known to so many of us as the poor, there would have been friendly neighbors ready to help them, and the same would have been the case had they belonged to the class of smug, well-meaning, if unimaginative, folk whom they had spent so much of their lives in serving. There was only one person in the world who might possibly be brought to help them. That was an aunt of Bunting's first wife. With this woman, the widow of a man who had been well-to-do, lived Daisy, Bunting's only child by his first wife, and during the last long two days he had been trying to make up his mind to write to the old lady, and that though he suspected that she would almost certainly retort with a cruel sharp rebuff. As to their few acquaintances, former fellow-servants and so on, they had gradually fallen out of touch with them. There was but one friend who often came to see them in their deep trouble. This was a young fellow named Chandler, under whose grandfather Bunting had been footman years and years ago. Joe Chandler had never gone into service. He was attached to the police. In fact, not to put too fine a point upon it, young Chandler was a detective. When they had first taken the house which had brought them, so they both thought, such bad luck, Bunting had encouraged the young chap to come often, for his tales were well worth listening to, quite exciting at times. But now poor Bunting didn't want to hear that sort of stories, stories of people being cleverly nabbed or stupidly allowed to escape the fate they always, from Chandler's point of view, richly deserved. But Joe still came very faithfully once or twice a week, so timing his calls that neither host nor hostess need press food upon him. Nay more, he had done that which showed him to have a good and feeling heart. He had offered his father's old acquaintance a loan, and Bunting, at last, had taken thirty shillings. Very little of that money now remained. Bunting still could jingle a few coppers in his pocket, and Mrs. Bunting had two shillings nine pence. That, and the rent they would have to pay in five weeks, was all they had left. Everything of the light, portable sort that would fetch money had been sold. Mrs. Bunting had a fierce horror of the pawn-shop. She had never put her feet in such a place, and she declared she never would. She would rather starve first. But she had said nothing when there had occurred the gradual disappearance of various little possessions she knew that Bunting valued, notably of the old-fashioned gold watch-chain which had been given to him after the death of his first master, a master he had nursed faithfully and kindly through a long and terrible illness. There had also vanished a twisted gold tie-pin and a large mourning-ring, both gifts of former employers. When people are living near that deep pit which divides the secure from the insecure, when they see themselves creeping closer and closer to its dread edge, they are apt, however loquacious by nature, to fall into long silences. Bunting had always been a talker, but now he talked no more. Neither did Mrs. Bunting, 
but then she had always been a silent woman, and that was perhaps one reason why Bunting had felt drawn to her from the very first moment he had seen her. It had fallen out in this way. A lady had just engaged him as butler, and he had been shown, by the man whose place he was to take, into the dining-room. There, to use his own expression, he had discovered Ellen Green, carefully pouring out the glass of port wine which her then mistress always drank at eleven-thirty every morning. And as he, the new butler, had seen her engaged in this task, as he had watched her carefully stopper the decanter and put it back into the old wine-cooler, he had said to himself, "'That is the woman for me.' But now her stillness, her, her dumbness, had got on the unfortunate man's nerves. He no longer felt like going into the various little shops close by, patronized by him in more prosperous days, and Mrs. Bunting also went afield to make the slender purchases which still had to be made every day or two, if they were to be saved from actually starving to death. Suddenly, across the stillness of the dark November evening, there came the muffled sounds of hurrying feet and of loud, shrill shouting outside, boys crying the late afternoon editions of the evening papers. Bunting turned uneasily in his chair. The giving up of a daily paper had been, after his tobacco, his bitterest deprivation, and the paper was an older habit than the tobacco, for servants are great readers of newspapers. As the shouts came through the closed windows and the thick damask curtains, Bunting felt a sudden sense of mind-hunger fall upon him. It was a shame, a damned shame, that he shouldn't know what was happening in the world outside. Only criminals are kept from hearing news of what is going on beyond their prison walls, and those shouts, those hoarse, sharp cries, must portend that something really exciting had happened, something warranted to make a man forget for the moment his own intimate gnawing troubles. He got up, and going towards the nearest window, strained his ears to listen. There fell on them, emerging now and again from the confused babble of hoarse shouts, the one clear word, MURDER. Slowly Bunting's brain pieced the loud and distinct cries into some sort of connected order. Yes, that was it. Horrible murder. Murder at St. Pancras. Bunting remembered vaguely another murder which had been committed near St. Pancras, that of an old lady by her servant-maid. It had happened a great many years ago, but was still vividly remembered as of special and natural interest among the class to which he had belonged. The newsboys, for there were more than one of them, a rather unusual thing on the Marylebone Road, were coming nearer and nearer. Now they had adopted another cry, but he could not quite catch what they were crying. They were still shouting hoarsely, excitedly, but he could only hear a word or two now and then. Suddenly, the avenger, the avenger at his work again, broke on his ear. During the last fortnight four very curious and brutal murders had been committed in London and within a comparatively small area. The first had aroused no special interest. Even the second had only been awarded, and the paper bunting was still then taking in, quite a small paragraph. Then had come the third, and with that a wave of keen excitement, for pinned to the dress of the victim, a drunken woman, had been found a three-cornered piece of paper, on which was written, in red ink and in printed characters, the words, THE AVENGER. It was then realized, not only by those whose business it is to investigate such terrible happenings, but also by the vast world of men and women who take an intelligent interest in such sinister mysteries, that the same miscreant had committed all three crimes, and before that extraordinary fact had had time to soak well into the public mind, there took place yet another murder, and again the murderer had been to special pains to make it clear that some obscure and terrible lust for vengeance possessed him. Now everyone was talking of the avenger and his crimes. 
Even the man who left their half-worth of milk at the door each morning had spoken to Bunting about them that very day. Bunting came back to the fire and looked down at his wife with mild excitement. Then, seeing her pale, apathetic face, her look of weary, mournful absorption, a wave of irritation swept through him. He felt he could have shaken her. Ellen had hardly taken the trouble to listen when he, Bunting, had come back to bed that morning and told her what the milkman had said. In fact, she had been quite nasty about it, intimating that she didn't like hearing about such horrid things. It was a curious fact that though Mrs. Bunting enjoyed tales of pathos and sentiment, and would listen with frigid amusement to the details of a breach of promise action, she shrank from stories of immorality or physical violence. In the old happy days, when they could afford to buy a paper, aye, and more than one paper daily, Bunting had often had to choke down his interest in some exciting case or mystery which was affording him pleasant mental relaxation, because any allusion to it sharply angered Ellen. But now he was at once too dull and too miserable to care how she felt. Walking away from the window, he took a slow, uncertain step towards the door. When there he turned half round, and there came over his close-shaven round face the rather sly, pleading look with which a child about to do something naughty glances at its parent. But Mrs. Bunting remained quite still. Her thin, narrow shoulders just showed above the back of the chair on which she was sitting, bolt upright, staring before her as if into vacancy. Bunting turned round, opened the door, and quickly he went out into the dark hall. They had given up lighting the gas there some time ago, and opened the front door. Walking down the small flagged path outside, he flung open the iron gate which gave on to the damp pavement. But there he hesitated. The coppers in his pocket seemed to have shrunk in number, and he remembered ruefully how far Ellen could make even four pennies go. Then a boy ran up to him with a sheaf of evening papers, and Bunting, being sorely tempted, fell. "'Give me a son,' he said roughly. "'Son or echo?' But the boy, scarcely stopping to take breath, shook his head. "'Only penny papers left,' he gasped. "'What do you have, sir?' With an eagerness which was mingled with shame, Bunting drew a penny out of his pocket and took a paper. It was the evening standard, from the boy's hand. Then very slowly he shut the gate and walked back through the raw, cold air up the flagged path, shivering yet full of eager, joyful anticipation. Thanks to that penny he had just spent so recklessly he would pass a happy hour, taken for once out of his anxious, despondent, miserable self. It irritated him shrewdly to know that these moments of respite from carking care would not be shared with his poor wife, with careworn, troubled Ellen. A hot wave of unease, almost of remorse, swept over Bunting. Ellen would never have spent that penny on herself. He knew that well enough. And if it hadn't been so cold, so foggy, so, so drizzly, he would have gone out again through the gate and stood under the street lamp to take his pleasure. He dreaded with a nervous dread the glance of Ellen's cold, reproving light blue eyes. That glance would tell him that he had had no business to waste a penny on a paper, and that well he knew it. Suddenly the door in front of him opened, and he heard a familiar voice saying crossly yet anxiously, "'What on earth are you doing out there, Bunting? Come in, do. You'll catch your death of cold. I don't want to have you ill on my hands as well as everything else.' Mrs. Bunting rarely uttered so many words at once nowadays. He walked in through the front door of his cheerless house. I went out to get a paper, he said sullenly. After all, he was master. He had as much right to spend the money as she had. For the matter of that, the money on which they were now both living had been lent, nay, pressed on him, not on Ellen, by that decent young chap, Joe Chandler. 
and he, Bunting, had done all he could. He had pawned everything he could pawn, while Ellen, so he resentfully noticed, still wore her wedding ring. He stepped past her heavily, and though she said nothing, he knew she grudged him his coming joy. Then, full of rage with her and contempt for himself, and giving himself the luxury of a mild, a very mild oath, Ellen had very early made it clear she would have no swearing in her presence, he lit the hall gas full flare. "'How can we hope to get lodgers if they can't even see the card?' he shouted angrily. And there was truth in what he said, for now that he had lit the gas, the oblong card, though not the word apartments printed on it, could be plainly seen outlined against the old-fashioned fanlight above the front door. Bunting went into the sitting-room, silently followed by his wife, and then, sitting down in his nice armchair, he poked the little banked-up fire. It was the first time Bunting had poked the fire for many a long day, and this exertion of marital authority made him feel better. A man has to assert himself sometimes, and he, Bunting, had not asserted himself enough lately. A little color came into Mrs. Bunting's pale face. She was not used to be flouted in this way for Bunting, when not thoroughly upset, was the mildest of men. She began moving about the room, flicking off an imperceptible touch of dust here, straightening a piece of furniture there. But her hands trembled. They trembled with excitement, with self-pity, with anger. A penny? It was dreadful, dreadful to have to worry about a penny. But they had come to the point when one has to worry about pennies. Strange that her husband didn't realize that. Bunting looked round once or twice. He would have liked to ask Ellen to leave off fidgeting, but he was fond of peace and perhaps by now a little bit ashamed of himself. So he refrained from remark, and she soon gave over what irritated him of her own accord. But Mrs. Bunting did not come and sit down as her husband would have liked her to do. The sight of him, absorbed in his paper as he was, irritated her and made her long to get away from him. Opening the door which separated the sitting-room from the bedroom behind, and, shutting out the aggravating vision of Bunting sitting comfortably by the now brightly burning fire, with the evening standards spread out before him, she sat down in the cold darkness and pressed her hands against her temples. Never, never had she felt so hopeless, so, so broken as now. Where was the good of having been an upright, conscientious, self-respecting woman all her life long, if it only led to this utter, degrading poverty and wretchedness? She and Bunting were just past the age which gentlefolk think proper in a married couple seeking to enter service together, unless, that is, the wife happens to be a professed cook. A cook and a butler can always get a nice situation. But Mrs. Bunting was no cook. She could do all right the simple things any lodger she might get would require, but that was all. Lodgers? How foolish she had been to think of taking lodgers, for it had been her doing. Bunting had been like butter in her hands. Yet they had begun well, with a lodging-house and a seaside place. There they had prospered, not as they had hoped to do, but still pretty well, and then had come an epidemic of scarlet fever, and that had meant ruin for them, and for dozens, nay hundreds of other luckless people. Then had followed a business experiment which had proved even more disastrous, and which had left them in debt, and debt to an extent they could never hope to repay, to a good-natured former employer. After that, instead of going back to service, as they might have done, perhaps, either together or separately, they had made up their minds to make one last effort, and they had taken over, with the trifle of money that remained to them, the lease of this house in the Marylebone Road. 
In former days, when they had each been leading the sheltered, impersonal, and above all financially easy existence which is the compensation life offers to those men and women who deliberately take upon themselves the yoke of domestic service, they had both lived in houses overlooking Regent's Park. It had seemed a wise plan to settle in the same neighborhood, the more so that Bunting, who had a good appearance, had retained the kind of connection which enables a man to get a job now and again as waiter at private parties. But life moves quickly, jaggedly, for people like the Buntings. Two of his former masters had moved to another part of London, and a caterer in Baker Street whom he had known went bankrupt. And now? Well, just now Bunting could not have taken a job had one been offered him, for he had pawned his dress clothes. He had not asked his wife's permission to do this, as so good a husband ought to have done. He had just gone out and done it, and she had not had the heart to say anything. Nay, it was with part of the money that he had handed her silently the evening he did it that she had bought that last packet of tobacco. And then, as Mrs. Bunting sat there thinking these painful thoughts, there suddenly came to the front door the sound of a loud, tremulous, uncertain double knock. End of chapter 1 Recording by Leanne Howlett